Welcome to the Whitetail Experience Podcast. We are a solution-driven environment for whitetail bow hunters, creating solutions leading up to the shot, the moment of truth, the shot, and events after a successful harvest. Join our community for more techniques to hunt with knowledge and shoot with confidence. And receive this podcast, plus additional articles and videos, at www.whitetailexperience.com. Hello, everyone. This is Eric Eastman again with the Whitetail Experience Podcast. Today, we bring you Bob Nancaro from Nancaro Taxidermy out of Vassar, Michigan. And Bob has uh, been a longtime friend of mine, but at the same time, he is a, I would put him in the class of a world-famous taxidermist. And our topic today is going to be about what to look for in a taxidermist for your whitetail mount. So you spent all this time out in the woods You've really focused in and you've done all the work, you've done all the preparation, got your tree stand in the right spot, and you you make that shot. The moment of truth has been managed, and you get this awesome whitetail buck. And now you've you've gutted it out, you've done your field dressing, you've caped out this animal, and uh, your next step is, is probably going to be to your taxidermist. Bob, I was hoping you could say hello to everyone today. Well, hello to everyone. This is Bob Dancurl at Dancurl Taxidermy, and Eric, I'm honored that you've given me a call. Well, thank you for taking the time. I know that you're getting ready to load up a significant amount of mounts here, and you just mentioned that you're going to be heading down to Florida for uh, to drop off a collection of beautiful mounts that you've just put together. And what's unique about Bob is he not only does uh, just his whitetail mount business is, uh, I would say, it's off the hook. He's got more <laughs> he's got more whitetail mounts going through his shop that you could shake a stick at. But Bob also does a tremendous amount of exotics. Bob, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your shop and what uh, what makes up Nancaro Taxidermy. Well, Eric, I've been a taxidermist for 40-plus years. Uh, we have a staff here that's comprised of 14 individuals, 14 highly accomplished individuals. I, I think most of them have been here for 20-plus years. Uh, we do over 400 whitetail a year. As you said, we do a lot of exotics, imports. We do animals from all over the world. Uh, our facility is large enough, which enables us to mount life-size elephants, life-size giraffes, rhino. And we're very fortunate to uh, be in this industry and, and to have the accounts that we've got. Now, Bob, I know that uh, different uh, taxidermists, there's uh, certification processes that happen. What um, Could you explain to me what uh, level of taxidermy you guys do and what levels there actually are for taxidermy? and what makes somebody great and somebody good and somebody just kind of okay? Well, it would be the level of ability. And uh, there is a classification in tax terms. There's a professional, uh, masters, master of masters, international masters. Uh, we fall into the category, I, I, and that is, uh, that is given to you when you enter competition, those titles, and you win those. Uh, I monitored and, and sent four of my staff a number of years back to the MTA, Michigan Tax Service Association, and we took first place in every division. Then one of my staff, my senior staff, went on to World and took second in World. That was the last that we competed. Now we just simply go ahead and take care of our accounts, and uh, we don't longer compete. We don't have to. So what level of taxidermy is Nancaro Taxidermy? Well, I would say that we're in the master's division. Uh, even though that we do international masters quality, uh, our mannequins that we work with, we can go ahead and alter these to any degree and or create some of the mannequins which are not even 
available because of the rareness of the animals uh, harvested. For example, there are, there are several animals that are taken through Europe and some in Africa. A mannequin is not even available. It has not been sculpted and it has not been made. We can make those in-house right here. Oh, that's pretty amazing. So with the exotics, you have got the ability to do a lot of just really unique stuff. And I can only imagine what you're able to do with a whitetail. It really sounds like the, uh, the, your imagination is the limit. It is the limit. Uh, that's funny you should say that because I'll have people that want to go through a catalog to pick out a pose. And I offer them the choice of just find a picture. Find something that you really like in real life and we'll make it for you. So, Bob, if I was fortunate enough to harvest a whitetail that I was particularly proud of and I wanted to take it up to your shop, what would be the process that I would go through once I entered your doors? If you were entirely by yourself and close enough, you could bring it right to the studio and we would skin it out. If you're further away and it needs to stay somewhere overnight, then you have to go ahead and prepare it accordingly. Uh, I would suggest yourself or someone qualified could uh, skin the cape off and freeze it. Uh, If that's not available, then you could uh, have to skin off the cape. Uh, turn the lips and the ears and the nostrils, and dry salt it. Okay, so for a novice hunter, if you go out and you were fortunate enough to get a nice whitetail, just kind of take the step-by-step to make sure that somebody would get their cape to the taxidermist in the way that you guys would expect it. How far back on the neck would you want somebody to start that caping process? Okay, go further than that, because the mannequins today generally are a good third of the deer, almost approaching half. You want to go behind the shoulder blades and do a a cut completely around the chest cavity. And then from the forelegs back on either side, the back side of the leg down to the knees. And that is how much cape that we need to do a quality mount today with these mannequins. Well, so you're not talking about a head mount. You're, You're talking about something more than that? We're talking about a head mount with full shoulder, brisket, and armpits. It's quite, it's kind of comical because we'll get people that'll bring in too short a cape and they'll ask for a full shoulder and they've, they've only got enough for a neck. You have to get behind the shoulders in order to have enough cape to do a full shoulder. Now, if somebody doesn't know how to turn the lips and the nostrils and salt it, what, what, would, you, what would you recommend for somebody in that scenario? Just basically getting out the cape and then snapping it off at the neck and throwing it in the freezer? <laughs> I know that's what I'm going to do to you, Bob. Well, Eric, uh, you know, Eric, without being comical here, I would suggest having a friend that did know. <laughs> uh, you, you're going to have to associate with or get to someone who has meat cutters. A lot of meat cutters have the ability to get one of these capes off correctly. Uh, most hunters, though, generally have a friend who can, can assist and guide and show them how. And in our brochures, we actually have a, a small diagram, a small picture that shows how to do it yourself in field. So if a person, person is going to go hunting and not to, have, not to have someone to help them, I would suggest that they call the studio or their own studio and get that information before they go. You know, that's a great point. So I'm fortunate. I know you, Bob, so I know exactly where my mounts are going to go. But if somebody in a different part of the country, you know, there's local taxidermists all over the place. If I'm looking for a good quality taxidermist because I've harvested a whitetail of a lifetime, what would you start calling around and asking for? What would you look for in a taxidermist that, um, that, that you would want to manage your mount? How would you start that process? Eric, what I would do, if you were to come into our studio, you'd be overwhelmed. And you, know, you have been in here before. It's overwhelming. Do not let that be the sole factor. You want to focus on a specific piece of interest. And in this case, it's whitetail. Look at the whitetail in the studio that you're going to choose. 
and then critique it. If you look at it and it in effect looks real and you go to your and you say to yourself, my gosh, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Well, you're in the right studio. If you look at the mount and you cringe or you question the color or the positioning of lips and eyes and ears, well, then that's not the studio you want to choose. You have to be comfortable with what you're looking at in, in as much as the realism that you're looking for. It's really artistry is what you're throwing out there. So it's really more um, subjective than it is objective. Absolutely. You know, we're all afforded the luxury of getting these mannequins from the same suppliers. It's whose hands that they're in, which is creates the final part of the thing of beauty and realism. Let's say that uh, you've gone out there, you've done your research, you've looked at the local shops. I've caped out my white tail appropriately. Uh, I may have frozen it because I didn't know how to turn the lips and nostrils. <laughs> and um, I get it to the taxidermist. What is the process at that point? Now I've dropped off the cape and I know you don't just get a white tail done overnight. So now, now it's about picking out the position of that white tail. So you're going to start saying, Hey, how do you want this thing to look? How many different positions are there that you can choose from? I know you said the sky's the limit, but at the same time, people want to manage their wallet. Correct. Well, they're almost, almost limitless. There is a variance in price, uh, depending upon degree of uh, difficulty. For example, a Fleming buck with soft open mouth and the nostrils up in the front of the teeth showing the, the tongue. That's going to cost more than just a conventional shoulder mount. Wall pedestals, which is a uh, type of display which is affordable today. The uh, wall, or excuse me, the floor pedestal, uh, which is another variation of that that comes up off a stand that's on the floor. That's going to affect the cost. But uh, getting back more to the pose, what one would want. I've had people come in and they'll say, I want it doing exactly what it was doing when I saw it and I shot it. Well, that might not be congruent with where they're going to place or want to place that mount. When they put it up on the wall, they find it's looking into the corner. So uh, what I ask is, do you know what room you're going to put it in? Generally, you'll get a positive answer. And then second, I ask, do you know what wall you're going to put it on in the room that you're going to put it in? Generally, they have the answer to that. And then with that knowledge and with that information, we can pick a pose to where the head best greets you or the strongest viewing point for that head in that room. And that's the best way to pick out the pose. You know, I think those really go back into, those are excellent questions to ask a taxidermist when you're interviewing them to make sure that they're doing something that's going to manage the actual placement of where you're going to put your mount. Absolutely. So I've heard you ask me uh, questions before in the past also, is that in terms of, you know, how do we show off the antlers the best? How do you go about that? Eric, that's another good question. If you have symmetry, uh, the left looks like the right. A straight mount will work. If you do not have symmetry, if it's a crooked rack, a straight mount is one of the last mounts that you want to go ahead and pick because it, it just is not a balanced piece. Best side, that's generally, you know, there are people that think the best side is looking at the inside of the curve. And then you'll have, a, you'll have a client that says, well, I think the best side is the outside of the curve. Again, that's going to be uh, the choice of the individual getting the mount. But all need to be discussed, absolutely. And so you may even say that if you got a couple of crazy stickers or something, you know, interesting or unique going on with a particular mount, you say, hey, let's show that off because that's a really unique feature to this whitetail. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. 
the mount has been picked out. You know, there's tons of ways. You got pedestal mounts. You got a right turn. You got a left turn. Actually, let's talk about that real quick, Bob, because that really got me screwed up. And I was talking to some folks in your shop, and uh, it literally took me uh, probably five to ten minutes to start understanding what a right turn and a left turn is. May not be what you're talking about as a right turn and a left turn. Eric, we go through that every year. And the simplest way to describe that is when they say left or right turn, it would be the animals, left or right, as it would be you. Your left arm is always your left arm. So if the animal is a left turn, it's the animal looking towards his left foreleg. Not you looking at the animal as a viewer standing on the floor looking up to it because it would go to the right. The simplest way that I could state that is it's the animal's leg as it would be your arm. That, that's excellent information because I, I've i known a few people that have made that mistake and they, they knew the room they wanted it in and, and they spoke pretty adamantly to their taxidermist. No, I want it. I want it to turn right. <laughs> you know, and the guy's like, hey, no problem. I'll do that. And Eric, you know, when you're conducting this type of business over the phone, that's when it most often happens. And I'll tell you something funny. When we're doing a fish and a person says they want the fish to go to the right or the fish goes to the left, well, then that is, that is as the viewer. So it's just the opposite of picking a head. So I can see where that's confusing. If you look up at the fish and you say, I want it going to the right, the head would be on the right. But that's not true with a deer. And that's pretty much all animals that you're, any game head that you're putting on the wall. Yeah. But this happens, you know, and it'll continue to happen. And we always try to go ahead and uh, make perfectly sure that our client understands that the left is his left. So, Bob, we've got the pose picked out. We know we've got pedestal mounts. We've got shoulder mounts. You can do full body mounts. Um, what about the, uh, you have a technical term for it, but what about the environment that you can create, the nature scene? What type of things can you do with that with a mount? And, and what type of mounts would you typically do that with where you start putting in branches and sticks and so forth you know that's limitless uh it's, we do the western scene where you you pick uh, some sage etc for antelope uh mule deer uh, you can do the most often is the fall scene where we use colorful artificial foliage uh woods and mosses uh later in the season you can encompass snow and ice it's just limitless. If, if a person has an idea or a picture or something that they want us to duplicate, we can do it. So what type of mount is that particularly conducive to? I mean, do you have to have a full mount to have some, uh, what, what is a technical term for that? What do you guys call that? A, a life-size. So life-size. A life-size mount. So yep. a life-size mount, you're doing that. Would you do it on a pedestal mount by chance where you create something that is an environment behind it? You don't generally do a life-size whitetail up on a pedestal. We do mountain goats up on pedestals, and we do sheep up on pedestals. But generally, a life-size whitetail uh, is uh, a floor piece. It's not raised up. Now, could you do a shoulder mount that's on a pedestal that could have some scenes associated to it, like a branch coming across? Oh, it certainly can. And again, as I said, it's limitless. Sometimes we're asked to duplicate the environment and the terrain where the, the whitetail was harvested. And a picture in the background, if they take a picture of themselves with that whitetail, we look into the background, we can duplicate that. We can pick up long, short needles. We can pick up an array of uh, maple or oak leaves, uh, birch, uh, popple. All of this stuff is affordable and available today. 
If somebody doesn't want to do a life-size mount, but they want to incorporate a scene into it, what type of statements would you make to make that come alive for somebody that maybe they don't have the room for a full-size mount, but they've got a they got enough to do a wall, uh, basically a shoulder mount or a neck mount or. Well, we're fortunate enough to, our studio is this large that we have a number of pieces that are always in-house. Uh, I don't know that we've ever gone through a fall where we didn't have some that we could actually show. There's uh, five or six of them that I'm looking at right now. So they, they can actually look at something in this studio uh, to help them get an idea. Okay, so now we've got our mount picked out. We know how we're the form we're going to pick, and we've gone through all the exercises that you just talked about. What is the process in the taxidermy studio at that point? So I know that, as I mentioned earlier, you don't just get your mount right away. Is it the next step to the tannery? I'm going to, inter- I'm going to interject here. Um, we, do, we use both. Eric, our studio is large enough. We have in-house tanning ourselves. We can tan, and it's commercial tan. I actually have a tanning background, so uh, that's not complicated or hard for me. We do send out cakes to to be tanned, and our volume uh, constitutes almost an immediate turnaround. We can get a 60-day turnaround, usually 30 days, uh, if they're not real busy, because our volume constitutes that. So we can get them out back to a person quite readily. Now, what determines the general turnaround time is your position when it's brought in. If you bring in a mount, uh, a request for a mount in September, and a deer harvested out west, you're going to be in the top first 20 of the season. Well, that'll get turned around in about four weeks. But if you bring in a deer head in December, starting into the following year, you're going to be deer number 400 and something. So you won't get yours back until possibly October. So what does a tannery do in in specific when you bring it in? Because, I mean, obviously, I mean, when I think of a tannery, I'm thinking of like cowhide or something like that, where it's all stripped and I got a nice leather belt. But uh, in this case... well, that's that is an avenue of tanning. Uh, the word tanning is actually the cellular the changing of the cellular structure of the hide from from uh, of raw to finished leather. That and that can have hair on it or not hair. It can, it can be just plain leather, you know, if the hair is removed. But um, the tanner <laughs> the tannery that we use or tanneries that we use do not do leather or hairless. This is the tanneries that we use are uh, strictly commercial tanneries for hides with hair for the taxidermy industry or garment industry. Okay. So the, the skin gets tanned, and then what happens with it once you get that back? Well, we get it back and we rehydrate it. Uh, we'll go ahead and put moisture back into it to get its full stretch and, and pliability. And then we start to uh, take our measurements, order the mannequin for it, and start on with our mounting process. Could you kind of elaborate on that a little bit as to what what is the process that every taxidermist has to go through to create a white-tailed deer? Just say a shoulder mount, for example. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. Number one, you bring it in, we skin it out, uh, or you, you have brought it in and skinned out. We prep it and get it ready for tanning. The tanning process, when we are ready to tan it, uh, starts with a uh, rehydration bath. That's starting to put the uh, water back into the hide so that it's pliable. Then it goes into a pickle. And from the pickle, it goes into a a neutralization bath to kill the acids in the hide. And then from the neutralization bath, it goes into a tan. And then from the tan, it's washed and rinsed. It's drained. Then it is oiled. An oil, a water-based oil, is put into the hide for longevity. And then it is ready to start the mounting process. So it's not as simple as uh, we just start mounting. (laughs) No, and unfortunately... 
in all of these taxidermy catalogs, you can get a what they call a quick tan, something that you paint on a rawhide. That I, I don't recommend that. Uh, it's a shortcut to nowhere. It's a shortcut to disaster. Uh, you don't get the longevity out of that hide. And uh, that's uh, it. by going to a top-notch studio, I don't know of any that stay in business for 10, 15, 20, 30 years that use that uh, shortcut. You know, I think that's a really great point when looking for a taxidermist is that uh, what you just mentioned right there is well, longevity in business is definitely a key credential to make sure you choose the correct taxidermist. And I think what you just pointed out there, just asking that question alone is what is your tanning process? Um, whether it's the quick paint on, like you just mentioned, or if it's the real, uh, the real deal, like, like you just ran us through, that would make a quick decision as to, uh, this guy's the real deal or, you know, I'm not going to this guy. Generally, when you walk into a, a tax shop of any size, uh, a person who's looking around, you, you can form an opinion quite quickly, just as in, in first meeting with an individual. If you look around and it looks as though it's professionally run and it looks like it's organized, that should uh, appease uh, the, the hunter. If you walk in there and your skin crawls and things don't look right, I suggest you keep on walking and walk right back out. So then how do you go about managing things like obviously eyes or glass um, and, and the other components of it? How do you manage those type of pieces inside of a mount? Because I know I've seen the foam structures, and you can actually Google it online and see what, a say, a McKinsey foam mount might look like. Um, how do you start managing those other detail pieces? Uh, obviously not specifically. I don't want to give away any trade secrets, but just kind of in general. How do they get the eyeballs in there appropriately and you know, you know eyelashes and things like that? I mean, is that thread or is that really the eyelashes? <laughs> Well, that comes with that comes within training. Uh, a taxidermist who's either self-trained or trained by a, another professional, um, no, just simply he he just simply knows how to do that. Anyone who's not capable of doing that uh, generally won't be in business for that reason and that reason alone. The eyes are wrong. We we have uh, heads that are brought in every year that are done at a different studio. And they need to be corrected. They're wrong. The, the nose too black. The, the lips have come apart. The eyes are set wrong. Uh, I could go on and on and on. But that's that's within the hands of the ability of the artist. How difficult is it to fix a mount once it's already been mounted and somebody says, you know what, I really jacked this up. I need to go to somebody real to get this fixed. Well, some Eric are fixable and some just simply aren't. And, and in that case, we just tell uh, the client, this needs to be done completely over. Uh, it's not going to be fixable. It was done wrong, and it can't be corrected. Sometimes we can correct them. That's that's a judgment call in each piece in its own individuality. So now the mount is done. Let's say I got a shoulder mount. What is the best way to I get it in my home? Everybody's got a unique way to uh, to hang a mount. What what do you recommend as the best way to hang a mount up in your home? Well, it shouldn't be complicated. Uh, the hangers that we use are self-centering. We do use the ones that the mannequin manufacturers send with with their mannequins. Um, it's not self-centering, but it's uh, it has four slots in the back for balance so that you can go ahead and pick an appropriate balance. Uh, you can slide it left or right so that it sits on the wall squarely and firmly. Uh, but it shouldn't. Uh, the hanging of a mount should not be complicated. We suggest that you hit a stud. You don't have to hit a stud. We offer fast. We call them fasteners. These are the hangers that go in the wall. 
we offer fasteners with each mount if the person so needs it so that they don't have to wonder what they're going to put in the wall. They'll know what to put in the wall. We'll give it to them. If you're buying like a, an anchor screw or something like that, would you recommend 50 pounds would be generous enough for a whitetail mount? Uh, no, that's that's pretty heavy. The average deer head is going to be more in the 35-pound uh, category. So if you want to overkill it to make sure it never falls down, <laughs> you can get the 50-pound anchor screw. <laughs> What are some suggestions for people if they if they do start getting a collection of whitetail trophies or other trophies that they're out, if they're going to build a room or something? I, I know you've given me some pointers in the past. If you're fortunate enough to be able to start at the beginning of the concept of a trophy room, we recommend lining the all of the interior walls with 5-8-inch plywood or OSB first. Three-quarter inch is even better. That way, when you're hanging your mounts anywhere in there, you can specifically pick a point where the mount looks best, as opposed on your heavier mounts and having to find a stud. So if you pre-line your wall behind the drywall, then you can hang them out anywhere. This is getting a little off topic, but uh, I'm fortunate enough to be going on a moose hunt this year. And I lined uh, the wall with three-quarter inch plywood. I know that um, in, in my room that I have built in my home, if I do get a moose, will I be able to basically mount that anywhere at that point? Yes, but you still should have it hung by someone that knows uh, professionally uh, what to do. So call us, Eric. We'll come down there and hang your moose head. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're going to need help hanging it anyhow. You might as well call someone that knows how to hang them. I just want to let you know I'm looking at where I want to put it, and it's way the heck up there in the room. I don't, I don't want to climb a ladder with a moose head. <laughs> no, you won't have to. We have the scaffolding, we have the ladders, and, and we do these things almost with our eyes shut. And, and I got a couple pictures of some whitetail uh, that actually look like moose, so that could be a challenge also. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see those. <laughs> so, uh, you know, another question I got for you, and it, been fortunate to know you for so long, Bob, is that uh, some of the an these questions are the answer to, but I know that a lot of people don't, that... What if you've had a mount that uh, you've had it hung in your house for the past 10 to 15 years, or maybe you inherited a mount uh, from your grandfather or your um, your grandfather's grandfather, and it starts getting a little old and ratty? I mean, what do you do to maintain your mount? How do you make sure that it's uh, the same quality or what you would expect it to be in your home? There are things you should be looking out for. Number one, you should always be looking out for uh, insect damage. Uh, I'm going to use the word moths. That's the most devastating thing you can get into a trophy room. And the more mouse you have, uh, the more you should uh, keep aware of that. In-house here in our studio, we treat this entire facility three times a year. Wow. Uh, through, throughout with uh, an insecticide. We use the uh, in-house, in-home uh, bug bombs that you can buy at any hardware store. And at the close of the day, we'll go through the entire studio and we'll set those off. If you uh, have a extensive trophy collection, I would suggest doing that in your home also or have hiring someone to come over there and do that. And you do it when you're going to leave. If you're going to leave on a Friday night and be gone for the weekend, that's the time to spray your home. Uh, I'm going to tell you a quick story here about uh, a bug infestation in a client's home years back. He was buying the commercial bulk bird feed, or his wife was, for their extensive 85 pair keep collection. <laughs> wow. And their home was infested with these teeny tiny little moths, which attacked his mouse. Over 50% of his collection was destroyed and not salvageable. 
when confronting and talking to him about these little moths, that's when I found out that his wife had all of these parakeets. Well, you can't you can't spray a room that has parakeets in it. You'd have to remove that. So there, this was definitely a conflict within this household. But the hardware store where they were buying their bulk, uh, I was in that hardware store, and I was in the section where this bulk bird feed was being sold. And in that hardware store, I saw these moths flying around. And I went to the owner of that hardware store, and I said, look, this this is what happened to a Mr. So-and-so, of which the uh, owner of the hardware knew that person. I said, these moths are going into people's homes, and they're attacking these mouths. How you, you, they stopped selling that bulk bird seed which was wise of them because they had no control over it. That's amazing. What about, uh, I've seen you going out and cleaning, uh, like, is it dust mites that you're cleaning off of these mounts? I, I've actually seen you go in and, and do some redusting and uh, and cleaning. Oh, we vacuum and clean these. These collect dust just like any piece of furniture would. Unfortunately, the furniture within your given household is, is wiped off every week. You aren't going to get too many hunters' wives or girlfriends to climb up on a ladder to wipe off all his mouth. <laughs> so, so <laughs> we both know that, Eric. But uh, yeah, we we're constantly cleaning these mouths, and the more you have, the more you want to stay abreast of that. Uh, they wipe. We vacuum them first, and then after the vacuum, they're wiped down with a uh, a damp uh, washcloth that might have. We have an actual chemical here that's called uh, Protex, and it has a, a very nice uh, aroma to it. And uh, we put a few drops on that on each cloth. It's uh, it prohibits insects from going in there, and it, and it has a hair enhancer. It makes the hair have more of a lustrous look to it, much as a cream rinse on a person when you shampoo. So yeah, these things need to be constantly cared for. A good wipe down once a year is quite sufficient. So is there a point in time where somebody should take a finished mount and take it back to their taxidermist to get this, say, maybe a touch-up work done? Yeah, there certainly is. After after years and years, maybe 10 years, 12 or 15 years, uh, that, that mount should actually be professionally clean. And we do we do go on site, professionally clean them in site, especially have, if they have a number of mounts. I mean, nobody wants to climb up and take an elk head or a moose head off the wall and carry it back to the tax terminus. I suggest that you call your tax terminus and have them come on out, do an inventory of the number of pieces you've got, and do an in-house clean. It's really not that expensive, and it's it's the most logical way to go. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. Just bringing the tools to the job site versus trying to bring the mounts to the taxidermist. Certainly. When you get your carpet steam cleaned, you don't pull up the carpet and take it back to the manufacturer. <laughs> you have them come out and clean it in-house. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's also important to note that, uh, you know, I actually have a, a white-tailed deer in your shop right now. It's the most unimpressive white-tail you've ever looked at, but it's the first white-tail I've ever shot. And I, when we were moving, somebody dropped it and cracked the nose. And I'm excited to pick that back up from you. But what does that process typically take when, uh, when somebody does something like that does happen? I know some people are just mortified and think that their life is going to be over because it's an unfixable scenario how do you how do you guys manage that well in your particular case there was a small fracture to the mannequin itself so not rehydrating the exterior of the hides what was pliable and then going inside to uh, repair and firming up the crushed foam 
And then once we had that firm, then a, an adhesive put back under the cracked parts of your height and glued back down uh, in a in controlled environment uh, so that everything dried correctly. So it's indistinguishable that there was a repair. You know, talking about repairs, what what type of things can a taxidermist do? Let's say that I, I harvested a beautiful whitetail and I've got one cracked horn on there and it's like it just totally screws up the mount how do you guys manage something like that i know somebody can just mount it the way it is i've heard of things like taxidermists being able to repair the horn or make a fox type horn to be able to make that animal come alive to what it should truly have looked like if it survived the natural environment you're talking about taking the dent out of the fender on a car Pretty much. <laughs> if it if it had a broken time on one side, yeah, we can recreate that and indistinguishably so. It's done with the uh, epoxy composites that they make today. Uh, depending upon the, the degree of uh, manufacturing of the repaired side, we've even, uh, in our extensive inventory of extra antlers, we've gone in there to take a portion and encompass that into it and do a blend. But uh, the important thing is, is it indistinguishable? Has it been repaired correctly? You can't tell that it was a broken time. Yeah, we can do that. Out of curiosity, is that frowned upon or is that... Uh... That's funny because uh, that's a mixed emotion thing. I've had, I've had people adamantly stand right here and say, well, that's the way it was when I got it and I'm not going to get that fixed. And I, another person will say, that was there before it got broken and I want it put back. That's just a choice thing. Do you usually bring that up as an option for somebody, or is that typically something that you leave up to the client to tell you? I generally leave the client to tell me if I see the broken tine, and I'm at the desk myself writing it up because there's two or three of us that could be at that desk writing up the client. I'll actually make mention. I say, you got a broken tine right there. I don't suggest that we fix it. I just simply bring it to their attention. Did you want anything done with that? And you'll get your answer right there. <laughs> you leave it pretty open-ended because you don't know how it's going to turn out. Oh, I know how it would turn out if we fix it. I don't know how it's going to turn out when they give me the answer. So I don't, I don't offer up an answer. I just, I just make mention of it so that it's discussed while we can discuss it together. If you were to put a percentage to uh, folks that would want it fixed versus not having it fixed, what would you put that percentage at? Do you think? I know you're thumbing it. <laughs> it's funny because more people get them fixed than not. Uh, you're, you're looking at 60, 40, just a little bit over half, more, more than half will get them fixed. More than half will opt in for the fix versus having the, uh, the broken tine in there. That's correct. And I guess really the only thing that affects is, um, obviously your official score. If you've got a really nice white tail. Well, you aren't allowed to score it. Yeah. That, that's, so you're done. That, that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would be deceit. That's not, uh, you can't do that. Yeah. We, we have a great episode <laughs> with Dave Moreland that, uh, went through and explained the process of Boone Crockett and Pope and Young scoring. So that's, uh, it's actually nice to hear it from the other side from, uh, from a taxidermist is what that means and, and what you guys can do with you know, a broken horn or whatever might, it was say, fixing the dent in the bumper. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, great, Bob. Is there anything else in this process that we should be considering or thinking about when we're uh, when we're considering a taxidermist for a whitetail mount? It's almost a no-brainer. I'm going to go back to the, the first comments uh, that I had made earlier. Be comfortable with what you're looking at when you go into a studio. Doesn't have to be a big one, not by any means. The size of the studio doesn't denote the quality. Uh, 
although it can. I mean, I would find it difficult for a studio to get pretty doggone big if they didn't do any quality. But look at the quality of the piece. If you if it wows you, if, if you really like what you're looking at, then the odds are you're in the right place. Uh, I think that's really, really insightful. It's because, because again, taxidermy is about artistry. It's not. It's it's very subjective. It's uh, not really objective, unless one eye is like five inches <laughs> lower than the right eye. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And you know we're getting really close to deer season too right now. Yeah, we are. So what uh, what are you expecting from? Uh, you said four to five hundred deer is what you'd be expecting to come through your studio this year. Yep. Yep, we will, and uh, we're ready for it again. We were just we probably have thirty remaining white tail to finish off with this year, and then we're ready for it to start all over again. Wow, that's great. Well, I got my sights set on uh, some pretty decent white tail, so I'm I'm gonna reserve a spot for me right now, Bob. I certainly will, Eric. We, we, I'll write your name in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be at the front of that list, not at the back of that list. <laughs> All right. We, uh, we'll see to it that that happens for you. Thank you. Bob, thank you so much for your time today and going out of your way to have this phone call with us because you've given us a lot of insightful information that I think a lot of people are going to be able to really take to heart when they're judging their current taxidermist or possibly looking for a new taxidermist. And of course, as you stated, you're worldwide, so you can always go on the web and look up Nancaro Taxidermy, and and uh, if they wanted to manage into something with you, they can. But if if they can't, then they still have the ability to the requirements to look for in their local taxidermist or somebody that may be with inside their own home state. Well, thank you very much, Eric, and this has been a real pleasure talking to you. Great, thanks so much, Bob. You have a great day. You too. Bye bye. To ensure you catch our next episode, go to www.whitetailexperience.com and join our whitetail community. 